Well, good morning. Welcome to the season of Lent. As you can see, we uh, certainly began with a different tone this morning. From the words of Psalm 51, which we just read, we can learn much why we keep these ancient traditions that surround Lent. The word Lent, of course, simply means spring, for the 40 days which precede Easter always come in the springtime for those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere. And we face this season with confidence and hope. The disciplines, in the midst of the disciplines which we practice, we trust that we can encounter God anew and afresh in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to invite you this morning to take out this gray handout, if you would, please. And together, let us prepare for the Lenten season. The story behind Psalm 51 is actually alluded to right there at the start of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Think of it. God's man. God's chosen man. The man whom God took from being shepherd over sheep and made him shepherd over the entire kingdom of Israel. The man whom God had blessed with victory in battle and great favor in peace, this man had entirely lost his way. He fell into adultery through the temptation of sexual desire. And then, to save face, he ordered the aggrieved husband to be murdered. Now you might think, well, how in the world did this happen? What was David thinking? Well, in fact, the repercussions of his actions would continue to echo throughout the kingdom for the rest of David's life. And about the only good thing to come out of this whole sorry affair was Psalm 51. Because Psalm 51 gives us an inside look into the nature of sin. And we are also reminded that the only alternative to sin and wrongdoing is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 2, David asks for two things. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David says, I am aware of my outward behavior, <laughs> and soon all the rest of the world would be aware of it too. This outward behavior he calls transgression or iniquity. And the, well, there's, in fact, there's one Old Testament translation that actually translates it lawlessness and that certainly describes what he has done 
In his outward behavior, David has transgressed God's holy law. But worse, in fact, much worse, is that in his heart, he has turned away from God. He has betrayed not only his friend Uriah, but he has turned away from loving the one who has loved him and cared for him since the days of his youth. David has turned to the love of self. And that is what this psalm really calls sin. For David, as for us, this sin is the root of all other lawlessness and wrongdoing, turning away from the love of God. That is what David actually means, what he says in verse 4 there, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. By saying, against you only have I sinned, David is not trying to minimize his exploitation of Bathsheba, nor his absolutely villainous betrayal of his friend Uriah. But what he is saying is that the root cause of all his lawlessness is that his heart has lost its love for God. And this is the sin which motivates all the rest. And then he goes on and he speaks about the utter perversity of his heart. And consequently about your heart and my heart. It is not for any fault that God has done or any fault for that which God is that David has stopped loving him. Look at verse 4b. He says, So that you, O God, may be justified in your words, and you are blameless in your judgment. The fault's not with God. God has not stopped loving David. It's David who has stopped loving God. And he's done so because there is this deep-seated sickness inside of David. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The fault is in David. It is his heart that has wandered away. And friends, the fault is in us. For left unattended, our hearts will turn anywhere except to God. In verses 6 through 8, David expresses his sorrow. In God's mercies, David is now back on God's wavelength, and now he can see what calamity his lawless deeds have created. Regret, guilt, sorrow, now they all start come flooding in. If wisdom is the ability to look ahead and predict the outcome of certain choices, then wisdom has finally returned to David. But it seems almost too late. And that is why David then begins to plead with God for his most 
immediate need. Forgiveness for his actions. Look at verse 9. He says, Oh God, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. And then the next thing he does is he turns to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of his heart. His heart that was once the habitation of the lovely, pure, sweet, delightful God has become the haunt of pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, and lust. And it is well that David prays in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In the secret place where David ought to be joyfully fellowshipping with the Lord deep within his heart, it is in that place that David has become estranged from God. David has grieved God's Holy Spirit, and he knows it. And in repentance, that knowledge that he has grieved the Holy Spirit has now begun to grieve David. Therefore, he cries out, Please, God, verse 11, Please cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friends, it's important to understand that David did not break fellowship with God because he sinned. He sinned because he had already broken fellowship with God. His heart had already turned away from communion with God. And then the folly and the pain and the destruction of outward transgression followed almost inevitably from the collapse of the heart. Now, dear friends, this is what Lent is all about for the believer, we practice Lenten disciplines not so much that we can enumerate all our outward sins and not because somehow we might plead with God or cajole him or bribe him into forgiveness. Our Lenten disciplines are about looking inside the heart and asking, Father, do I really love you? Am I really at one with you? Are there places within where I am resisting your Holy Spirit? Is there unsurrendered ground in my heart that may eventually rise up and break our fellowship? Yes, we need to confess our outward lawlessness, but if that is all that we do, then we are destined to fall into the same or worse transgression all over again. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says, 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law Now look carefully at verse 16. Verse 16, Galatians 5, verse 16, is not two commands. It does not say, walk and do not gratify. It is one command and one result. Walk and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Verse 18 says, if you're led by the Spirit, you will not find yourself under the grip of the law's condemnation, falling over and over again into that cycle of transgression, and then regret, and then despair, and then seeking forgiveness, only to fall into transgression all over again. The purpose of Lent is to prepare our hearts to walk by God's powerful Holy Spirit. Okay. What then do I mean when I say walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? I would like us this morning to find some biblical terminology that will help us understand what we mean when we say walk by the Spirit. Now I invite you to turn the handout over and I'd like to talk about walking in the power of the Spirit. And my first question would be this. Do you have the Holy Spirit at all? If you're going to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the first question is do you have him? Well, Romans 8, 9 assures us that the Holy Spirit indwells every genuine believer. You cannot be saved and be heaven-bound unless the Holy Spirit is living in you. That is not an option. He who does not have the Spirit of God is none of his. Now, there are some earnest Christian folk from non-sacramental traditions that occasionally say, yeah, yeah, I know you're saved, but have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm certain that such people are well-intentioned. But I would offer for your thinking this morning that that is unhelpful language because it separates two things that God holds together. In mystery. Baptism is a mystery. Baptism is the sacramental rite of entry into the visible church and it is the doorway to salvation. I didn't make this up, Paul did. <laughs> Friends, there is only one baptism. That's in the creed. We say it every Sunday, don't we? There's not one baptism of water and another baptism by the Holy Spirit. In fact, 
the words baptism by the Holy Spirit don't appear anywhere in the New Testament. Yet. <laughs> the words Jesus said, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit, are prominent in Luke and Acts and John. Well, what shall we say to these things? Here's the bottom line. The church in her wisdom has come to understand that the rite of water baptism is baptism by the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The rite of water baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Somebody in the back there wants to stand up and say, Come on, Pastor! Are you trying to say that you don't believe in the coming of the Holy Spirit? Because we've seen a lot of people be baptized that don't look like the real deal at all. And, Pastor, are you trying to deny the experience of thousands of people from the day of Pentecost, yea, verily, even unto the present hour? No. Not at all. I'm not doing anything of the sort. So please listen carefully to these words. Genuine baptism is a complex of three elements. And I've written them down for you there in your handout. So if you forget this, I'm guiltless. Genuine baptism is a complex of three elements. It is the outward rite of water, the initial belief and repentance of the person, and the initial reception of the Holy Spirit. But here's the tricky part, friends. If you look at Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 10, you see that these three elements do not come in some fixed order. Jesus said in John 3 that the coming of the Holy Spirit, that is, to be born again, is a mystery. We don't know when or how it actually happens. That is why the church eventually came to the universal practice of baptizing infants. Because only God knows when and how water and the Holy Spirit and faith ultimately coalesce in the heart of the person who is heaven-bound. But this we do know. The promises of baptism are fully realized when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer, and when he does so, he does so forever. And here's the problem, and it's always been the problem in the church. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not observable by others. Every pastor wish he could go to the Amazon.com and order the thing called the Holy Spiritometer and hold it up to a person's heart. But there ain't no such thing. 
The indwelling of the Spirit is simply not observable by others. No other heart but yours can testify that salvation has come to your soul. And that is an assurance which only God can give you. Therefore, Lent is an invitation to examine your own heart. Am I really in the faith? Does the Holy Spirit really indwell me? The indwelling Holy Spirit, that's the first step in walking by the Holy Spirit. Here, the second question, the second step. The question is this. Are you being filled by the Holy Spirit? Are you being filled by the Holy Spirit? The present tense is intentional. For the filling of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing process. We are filled minute by minute by God's Holy Spirit, never once and for all. People will ask me, but pastor, don't you believe in a second blessing? Yes, I most certainly do. And a third, and a fifth, and a 5,555th. To be filled by the Holy Spirit means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Under his control. And the references in Luke and Acts and the rest of the New Testament to filling, filled, full of the Holy Spirit, they abound. This moment by moment filling of the Holy Spirit is the very thing Christ commanded in John 15 when he said, abide in the vine. When we don't abide, we wither and we dry up spiritually. You see, where folks often get confused is that on some occasions, and you can see this in the book of Acts, on some occasions, the initial reception of the Holy Spirit may also come with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not only is this beautiful in God's sight, but it was often assigned to the church that God was reaching out to new peoples and new races with life, his life-giving spirit. Now, remember what I said? No one can see the indwelling Holy Spirit? Well, without the filling of the Holy Spirit, how would Peter have known that the Spirit had fallen upon the Gentiles? Only by the outward visible signs of the filling of the Holy Spirit that came at the same time. So where does this filling of the Holy Spirit come from? The filling occurs both in response to our day-by-day disciplines and mountaintop experiences. As we practice our Lenten disciplines daily throughout our lives, We learn to reject quenching and resisting and grieving of the Holy Spirit. 
These are the killers, the unfillers, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So my question to you this morning is, are you living your life daily such that you are being filled by God's Holy Spirit? And when you fall, do you repent and ask God to take charge once again, filling you, taking control once again? Finally, I believe Lent is an ideal time to ask ourselves, does my life look like Jesus? The result of continued walking and filling by the Holy Spirit day by day is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that begin to appear in my life. Christ-like character begins to appear, but it's not instantaneous. It's not in a week. It's not in a month. It's a process. But the spirit-filled walk begins to change who I am inside. The Lenten disciplines of his word, when conducted across the weeks and the months, begin to produce a change. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these begin to appear. My prayer this morning is that our Lenten repentance may lead us to such a life, and that our hearts may be filled by God's Holy Spirit, so that our conduct will be pleasing both to man and to God. Amen.